If you're a guest, uh, I hope that today we don't offend you with stuff like that, though it's possible, and we're delighted you're here today, at least. We pushed the pause button on this War of Myths series last weekend so that we could do the Father's Day deal out under the big top, which was a hoot, by the way. And uh, let's pick up this War of Myths series today and dive back in to the second message in this Five Narratives from Mark's Gospel series. How many of you, show of hands, have seen the film Gran Torino? Yeah, lots of you. Really? This is the least percentage of any of the services, by the way. Uh, Way more hands in the other services. I saw it this week. And I want you to know that I'm real, real picky and selective about the R-rated films that I watch. Uh, If a film's R-rated, I won't just go see it. I'm discerning and... I started doing that a long time ago because I found that R-rated movies, uh, as a rule, typically do not help me more passionately love and follow Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, very often they have quite the opposite effect on my life, on my soul, on my relationship with God, and so as a rule, I typically stay away from them. Yet on somewhat of a rare occasion, when a film has one of those big R ratings, and yet is being described as sort of a cultural benchmark kind of film, I'll make an exception. I'll take it in. And there was enough of that buzz around Gran Torino that uh, I took it in. And I found it to be, as probably you did as well, incredibly compelling. It just is incredibly compelling. And uh, I'm not advocating that every person see the movie. Some of you, if you watched it, would be very offended, I'm sure. But I've just found it to be very, very compelling. If you haven't seen it, it's a Clint Eastwood movie who is uh, an all-star actor in my view. And in this film, he plays this retired Polish-American Ford Motor Company uh, assembly line worker. He's a Korean War veteran. His name in the film is Walt. He's haunted by Korean War, the, the, the memories of the Korean War conflict. He lives alone with his Labrador ret- retriever, Daisy, in this very, very immigrant-rich ever-changing Highland Park, Michigan neighborhood. It's becoming more and more dominated by immigrants, which bugs him. And Tao, who is the teenage son of the next-door neighbors, uh, an Asian family that lives next door to Walt, he tries one day to steal Walt's beloved Gran Torino. I think it was a 72, absolutely mint condition. He bought it right off of the end of the assembly line. I think he said that he put the steering column in it as a matter of fact, and Tao tries to steal it from him as a result of gang pressure. And Walt catches him red-handed in the act. He doesn't get away with it, and Tao works for Walt to regain his family's honor, sort of reparations in the form of physical labor. Through this really cool relationship, Walt forms what is an incredibly unlikely and close bond with Tao and his whole family, as a matter of fact. It's this incredible rapport that uh, starts to look like a mentoring relationship eventually and throughout so the thread through the whole film is that a gang is attempting to force Tao to join them and he won't he doesn't want any part of it and on one such occasion the gang trying to convince Tao to join the gang actually drags Tao off of his own front porch and uh, starts to assault him for not joining him attempting to apply pressure on him to join them the conflict ends when Walt as only Walt can do comes to Tao's aid threatening the gang members and demanding that they get the heck off of his lawn. On another occasion, Tao's sister Sue, I'll leave some of that lingering for you. On another occasion, Tao's sister Sue was being accosted on a street corner by three teenagers. 
Walt happens to be driving his Ford pickup truck by the scene. He stops the pickup truck and boldly, as only again Walt could do, uh, rescues her. He confronts the teenagers, (laughs) drives Sue back home. And because of Tao's continued, continued, continued refusal to join the gang, they decide they're going to exact one final revenge on their family. One night they drive by and shoot the thing up with automatic weapons, a drive-by shooting. And then ultimately, they ultimately rape and assault Tao's sister, Sue. Walt's had enough. This cannot continue. And so he decides he's going to go and confront the gang members right in their own front yard for this drive-by shooting for raping Sue. And so he goes and he stands in the front yard and he raises quite a ruckus. All of the neighbors come out to watch this confrontation, this once and for all confrontation. And in full view of the entire neighborhood, Walt very calmly takes a cigarette from his jacket and he puts it in his mouth and he asks the gang for a light. And then he very slowly, strategically reaches into his jacket before pulling his hand out very quickly. The gang was expecting that he was going to pull out a gun. When his hand came out, it was a lighter in his hand. The gang thought that Walt was going to shoot them, so they shot him, gunning him down. The film doesn't end too much longer after that scene. I might have spoiled it for you. (laughs) You don't know whether Walt lives or dies. I leave that for you. And the credits roll, and I was absolutely struck in a very deep part of myself that Jesus Christ calls us to be about the saving of souls, but that he doesn't only call us to be about the saving of souls, but instead, at a much more holistic level, Jesus actually invites and calls and tasks us to be about transforming the world from this very hostile place it is, a place where gang members drive by, shoot a family's home, and rape and assault a young teenage girl and attempt to recruit and recruit and recruit a young man who has no desire whatsoever to be a part of that gang, Jesus calls and invites us to be about transforming the world from that kind of a hostile place where that kind of thing goes down with regularity toward a place that is made more ready for God's rule and God's reign on earth. Jesus does that by asking us and tasking us to be about fishing for people. To be about fishing for people. And if you haven't been around Journey Church very long, I want you to know that we as a church community are all about saving souls. It's fundamental, as a matter of fact, to our very mission. Our mission statement is reaching people who are far from God, saving souls, and growing them up in Jesus Christ. Saving souls matters incredibly deeply to us. I ran some numbers this week. I was just curious. I hadn't looked at it in a while. 
uh, over the course since September, 42 weeks we are into this fiscal year, and in 42 weeks since the start of September to this point in our year, 320 people around the life of our church have, have let us know that they've invited Jesus Christ to be their Savior. 320 people. That is astounding and staggering, something for which God gets all credit and all honor and all praise for. That, on average, is seven people a week in the life of our church who are inviting Jesus Christ to be their Savior. Right through the ministries of Journey Church. And when you look at the bigger picture, I was like, okay, that's cool. Let's uh, step back a notch. Since Journey started almost four years ago, 972 people have let us know that they've invited Jesus Christ to be their Savior. Astounding, almost 1,000 people in about four years. And they're inviting Jesus to be their savior in the kids department and in the student ministry department, middle and high school students, in the marriage mentor program, as we're trying to help all of these couples whose marital legs are kicked out from underneath them for one reason or another, many, many people are coming to the realization that their marriage will never be healthy, it'll never be what God intended it to be, unless they have a right relationship with God himself. And so we're we're just trying to help their marriage. And lo and behold, they're like, Wow, i got to get right with God, don't I? Absolutely. It's happening in the women's ministry, in the men's ministry. Uh, For crying out loud, it's happening in this round pin equestrian ministry. Don goes and he sets up that round pin and he talks about training this horse and then he invites people at the end of it to yield their life to Jesus Christ and they do. They get it. Something connects in the deepest part of their soul. All week long, through the dozens and dozens of ministry portals in the life of our church, men and women, young and old, children, are inviting Jesus to be their Savior because it is the deepest need of the human soul. And all of us as a community, we get to be a part of that. We're the conduit that God uses to do that in the lives of people. And you talk about a thrill, and you talk about a blast, and you're part of it. You're not just sideline observers. You are a fundamental part of that. All of us are together. And I want you to hear that as great as all that saving of souls is, it's not where redemption and it's not where ministry and it isn't where transformation stops. See? Because Jesus calls us and invites us and challenges us to be about transforming this world from the hostile place it is toward a place that is made ready for his rule and his reign right here on earth. Jesus calls and asks and invites us to have a holistic view of redemption, a holistic view of people, a holistic view of his kingdom by being a part of saving souls and so much more than just saving souls. If you've got a Bible, turn to Mark 1, 16, if you would. Mark chapter 1, verse 16. We'll hang out here for a few moments. It'll be on the side screens if you do not have a Bible in your lap. Mark 1, 16, here's what the Bible says. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. Weird. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. He called for them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. And you can almost see that setting. 
can't you? Sort of captured in your mind's eye. The sun getting very low in the sky, starting to edge beyond the western hills of the Sea of Galilee. Simon and Andrew, they're standing on the shoreline, casting their net into the shallow water in hopes of just one final catch before the Sabbath begins at sundown. Zebedee's boys, they're a little further along the beach. They're with their dad in the boat, mending nets, anticipating the next week's work. Some of his hired men are there with them, Zebedee ran quite a large fishing operation. The hired men were probably putting in overtime so that this repair job would be finished by sunset, start of the Sabbath. And then here comes Jesus just sauntering along the shore of the sea. He first stops and he talks with Simon and Andrew. Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. What a crazy invitation. It's simply nutty, isn't it? And lo and behold, as if it happens every single day, they just throw their nets down and start following Jesus. All right, sounds cool to me. Here we go. A little further down the beach, here it is. It's time now for Jesus and the boys to stop off at the Zebedee boys' boat. And again, Jesus shouts out this very dramatic invitation to them. Come, I'll show you how to fish for people. And I'm sure the elder Zebedee, Mr. Zebedee, is sitting there in his boat. He's like, who in the world does this guy think he is? Like walking around like God Almighty or something like that? How dare he come down here to this world-class fishing operation and talk like that to my boys? He's sitting there thinking like, my boys are way too smart to entertain such a ridiculous proposal as that. Here comes this carpenter carpenter calling blue-blooded Zebedee boys to join him in a human fishing expedition. Fishing for people, I'm sure. But at Jesus' beckoning, James and John, they didn't hesitate for a second. They got up, they probably gave dad a kiss on either cheek, jumped out of the boat onto the dock, and they left him sitting there slack-jawed. The employees gawking at what just went down. It was though as if they had been waiting their whole lives for that moment, wasn't it? And you've all heard tons of sermons, I'm sure, about the calling of those earliest disciples, right? How they left everything, their nets, their boats, their families, their livelihoods, they walked away all for the sake of following Jesus Christ. But I don't want to make much of the leaving today. That's cool, but I don't want to make much of the leaving Instead, I want us to make much and focus on what it is exactly that Jesus calls those guys to. What it is exactly that Jesus is inviting Simon and Andrew and James and John and us to become fishers of people. Now, the very easy answer, you've heard these sermons, is that when Jesus calls these guys to become fishers of people, He's calling them simply to become evangelists, right? Oh, yeah, he's calling them to become evangelists. And you're like, so what's new, Brian? What are you going to do with that? That's what Jesus calls all of us to do, to be evangelists, to be about saving souls. That's what we read in plain view in the text. We're supposed to always be about, because we're followers of Jesus Christ, it's fundamental to our mission that we're casting our nets, that we're throwing our lines over the edge of our proverbial boat, and we're about fishing for people, winning them to faith in Jesus Christ, having conversations across kitchen tables, coffee shop tables, challenging people. What does it mean for you to have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Telling them that the most important relationship in your life is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Asking people 
What do you do with God? How do you relate to God? What do you think of this Jesus fellow? How are you doing at having those kinds of conversations? How's that going? Because see, as followers of Jesus Christ, those kinds of conversations are absolutely fundamental to our mission. And if right now you're attempting to think back on the last time you had that kind of a conversation with somebody who is far from God and you're like, well, I think it was like maybe four years, may, oh no, maybe it was five years ago. I think that ought not be the case for we who follow Jesus Christ. We should be able to in a moment go, oh yeah, I was talking to a guy just the other day. I was talking to a gal just the other day. I was engaged with a friend just the other day. Not like the finger in your chest, turn or burn kind of conversation. Not that. Not that. An engaging conversation. A conversation that probably starts with a question. What do you do with the person of Jesus Christ? It's fundamental to who we are as followers of him. It's one of the first things he tasks us with. To be about fishing for people. Winning people to faith in Jesus Christ. But it would appear from Mark chapter 1 that Jesus has a whole bunch more in mind than just a benign reference to evangelistic mission when he references this concept of fishing for people. Jesus very strategically uses those words, fishing for people. He could have chosen from a whole other vocabulary, but he latches onto those words, fishing for people. He could have called them to be a whole lot of other things. In some other places in the New Testament, in the sacred text, Jesus references some of those quite evangelistic roles. At one point, Jesus speaks of their role, his workers, his followers, having the role of shepherds gathering up the lost sheep from the house of Israel. That's a very strongly evangelistic concept. A shepherd gathering up lost sheep. Another time, Jesus speaks of his followers, his disciples, being laborers who are bringing in the sheaves. That has a certain evangelistic mission, though I have no idea what in the world a sheave is. I heard a hymn about it once, bringing in the sheaves, bring, right? Maybe some of you know that song. We don't sing it here because nobody knows what the heck a sheave is. Suffice it to say, it's evangelistic. But he didn't use those words with these four guys. At the calling of Simon and Andrew and James and John, Jesus specifically calls them to be fishers. Where does that come from? Why? Well, certainly it's because they were fishermen. Yes, he's trying to attach onto, he's contextualizing his invitation. Absolutely. But also, in the Old Testament of the Bible, the Old Testament prophets used this fishing deal, this fishing metaphor, as the image, watch this, of gathering people for judgment. Ooh. Gathering people for judgment. Let me show you. Jeremiah chapter 16. This is the world's largest fish hook. And I was hoping it would increase the odds of me catching a fish. Maybe I'll just dredge for them. And if this is the hook, you should see the pole. Jeremiah 16, 16. But now I am sending for many fishermen who will catch them. That's actually God speaking about and to his own people, the nation of Israel. And then look at Amos 4 too. This is brutal. 
The sovereign Lord has sworn this by his holiness. The time will come when you will be led away with hooks in your noses. Get that image in your head. Every last one of you will be dragged away like a fish on a hook. That's God through his messenger Amos to some women who God elected to refer to as the cows of Bashan. Hardly a complimentary reference. These were oppressive women, see. Incredibly oppressive women. Women who were married to incredibly oppressive men, and God says, you're on the hook. You're on the hook. Ezekiel 29.4, I will put hooks in your jaws and drag you out on the land with fish sticking to your scales. Habakkuk 1.14-17, are we only fish to be caught and killed? Are we only sea creatures that have no leader? Must we be strung up on their hooks and caught in their nets while they rejoice and celebrate? Then they will worship their nets and burn incense in front of them. These nets are the gods who have made us rich, they will claim. Will you let them get away with this forever? God referring to oppressive, unjust, mistreating people. Will you let them get away with this forever? Will they, will, will they succeed forever in their heartless conquest? This fishing metaphor that Jesus uses with the calling of Simon and Andrew and James and John is Jesus summoning to mind the truth that the oppressors and the unjust and those who have chosen to gain their wealth through unjust and oppressive means do not escape God's notice and will not escape God's judgment and will be brought to judgment. See, and he's saying, you, my followers, you have a role to play in that process. See, you have a role to play in that process. Jesus, see, through the calling of those first four disciples is calling us and inviting us as well as them to join him in this grand struggle to overturn and transform a culture where oppression is frankly the norm, isn't it? Where injustice is just mainstream, where the practice of gaining wealth through unjust and oppressive means is commonplace. He's calling Simon and Andrew and James and John and you and me to be a part of changing the world from the hostile place that it is and instead constructing the way for God's reign right here on earth, right now. And we do that on one hand through the saving of souls, don't we? We do it through the saving of souls, absolutely. And we also do that through very strategic living that is aimed at alleviating oppression and alleviating injustice right through our everyday lives. And there's a whole lot related to this. Some is very micro, some is very macro. I've been thinking about it in lots of terms this week. What about the clothes that I wear? Does my wearing of these clothes in any way contribute to oppression and injustice in some factory, someplace on earth that would be referred to as a sweatshop? So instead of being a person who is fishing for men, 
I actually further the injustice. Because I buy these clothes, and I'm pretty sure that something that I'm wearing is made in a sweatshop. I'd almost guarantee it. I actually further it. What about this Fiji water? Uh, it's been a long time since this was actually Fiji water. It's Culligan water now. Uh, it was Fiji water the day I bought it, drank it, and now I just like the bottle, right? But do you know that on the island of Fiji, two-thirds of the people who live on that island do not have clean drinking water? And they call their water there like the best water on earth. It tastes like water to me, but they call it the best water on earth and they bottle it up in these cool bottles and send it out all over the world, and people like us buy it and drink it, while two-thirds of the people there don't have clean drinking water. Are we about fishing for people, or are we actually a part of an oppressive culture that restricts people's ability to have access to clean drinking water? What about this one? How about your 401k? How's that going for you? by the way. Your 401k. I don't have a 401k. Mine's called a 403b, and it's no better than a 401k, I promise. Are there things in our 401ks, in our retirement plans, in our mutual funds that actually supports the oppression of humankind, injustice of humankind? Are we investing in places like Iran through our 401ks and mutual funds? Are we fishing for people or are we actually forwarding the very thing that Jesus is asking and calling us to roll back and repeal and put an end to injustice, oppression? Fishing for people. We can do it through our everyday lives. What about those of us who employ others? Are we more concerned with our bottom line than we are with paying people a living wage? Are we part of oppressing people through paying them an unfair, a wage that we know they can't live on for the sake of our bottom line? Or are we about actually fishing for people through the rolling back of injustice and oppression? on both a micro and a macro scale. It's both, you see. And for a long, long time within the church of Jesus Christ, our traditional understanding of discipleship and all that it means to follow Jesus was to actually take people out of the world because it's such a hostile place, right? It's mean, it's hard, bad things happen here. So we'd insulate and we'd cocoon Christians until they had almost zero significant relationships with people who aren't Christians because we thought that was for some reason better. We had this bent that, well, this whole world is going to come to an end someday, so why don't you just get saved, get your soul right with God, and then just sit tight until God vacuums you up and takes you to heaven. This whole world is just going to go away anyway. There's nothing we can really do about all of this bad stuff. We just got to sit tight, make sure we're right with God, and wait for him to come and get us, see. But that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not even close, as a matter of fact. One of the primary ways that we've done that is as Christ followers, as the church, we've sat on the sidelines far too long with this whole deal of environmental stewardship. I talked about it for several weeks last summer, as a matter of fact. 
we said, well, the world's going to end anyway. Jesus is coming back, and all of this, here's how we say it, all of this is going to burn anyway, so we really don't need to take good care of it because it's just all going to go away, right? And now we're in a heck of an environmental mess all over the place, and I'm not just talking about global warming. Think of the month of June in Bozeman and talk to me about global warming. God says, steward my creation. Steward my creation. God actually has a redemptive aim for all of his created order, not just for humanity, and he asks us, expects us, to be a part of bringing about that redemptive end, see. Caring for the planet isn't worship of the planet. Caring for the planet doesn't somehow reduce our relationship with God. It actually heightens it. This is the creation of God himself. Us stewarding it is the call of God on the very first human beings he put here. We've just forgotten that. We've moved over to a place of we're just waiting for God to come and get us. We're just hanging out until then. Get your soul right with God and all this is going to burn. It is not the way that it should be. And that kind of a mentality sells way short the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I have to ask, is it because we've misunderstood the gospel of Jesus? Is that the reason that the church, especially in the West, is in such abysmal shape? We're in trouble. We're losing ground. We're not gaining ground. We're losing ground. I heard about a guy who was traveling to help church planners all around the world. He was trying to help them be very effective in their efforts. And he spent a lot of time with very bright, very attractive, very non-traditional church leaders all around the world. And every time he was with groups of them who were working on planting churches, the very first thing he ever asked them was, why in the world are you planting your church? He would give them a couple of minutes, they'd think about it, they'd write down their response, and then he asked them to share. Unanimously, every time, their answer was, so that people will go to heaven. Cool. Now describe how people are going to get to heaven because you planted your church. There was a little stir, there was a little debate out there. But they all agreed eventually that people would get to heaven by hearing the gospel and then by responding appropriately. Next, the leader said, uh, how are people going to get to hear the gospel because you planted your church? They said, through our preaching, of course. Fine, he said. And what will be their appropriate response? And how will you know that they've made that response? Ah, they said, it's easy. They will pray a prayer and they will receive Jesus into their hearts. Where will that happen? The leader asked. At first they liked the idea of that being able to happen anywhere, but then eventually they came to their senses and were honest enough to say, we actually envision that happening after a sermon in our church. Now this leader, he's a gracious guy, very nice. He said, all right, anything about any of those answers that you wish to change or adjust? Nope, they said, we'll stick with those. Great. He said, then let me summarize your concept of the gospel. You're going to start a church so that you can preach the gospel, hope people believe your message, pray a prayer, and go to heaven, right? They smiled and nodded in unison. Uh huh. The leader, he pushed in just a wee bit more. He said, well, what is the gospel? They said, well, that's easy. It's the message of God's love and forgiveness of all our sins and hope of eternal life someday in heaven. Great, leader said, kept going. So the gospel then is a systematic set of beliefs or doctrines about God, about sin, about heaven, about hell that you try to get somebody to buy into. They nodded. 
So salvation then is viewed as a gift that you get when you pray a prayer. They nodded like puppies watching a yo-yo. So a Christian then is someone who prayed a prayer. They're nodding. A good Christian, he said, is someone who's prayed a prayer, consistently comes to your church, gives lots of money to your church, and generally stops committing the biggie sins. They're still nodding. Yes, you've got it. So a non-Christian, someone who is doomed to hell for all of eternity, is someone who hasn't prayed a prayer. And when that leader said it, it happened a lot like it did in this room. It got incredibly quiet. But that leader didn't let him off the hook. Evangelism, then, he says, must be the process of trying to get someone to pray a prayer. Heaven, then, this beautiful and wild and awesome and forever kind of place is only for those who prayed a prayer and hell, fire, gnashing of teeth, eternal torment is for everyone who didn't come to your church, didn't hear your sermon, and didn't pray your prayer. Ouch. Ouch. Now, I need this to be as well understood as anything I've ever said in the short history of our church because that story could leave quite a bit of misunderstanding about what I'm saying. And this is too important to leave that dangling out there. I want to be absolutely crystal clear that there is nothing, and I mean nothing more important than our eternal condition in relationship to God himself. Absolutely nothing matters more than whether or not we have a relationship with God. Nothing. Having a personal relationship with God is the determining factor for whether or not a person spends their forever with God in heaven or their forever apart from God in a very real place that the Bible calls hell. And you and I, having the kinds of conversations with people that invite and challenge them to order their lives accordingly and to engage in a relationship with Jesus Christ is the mandate of Jesus himself to us. We're called, we're invited to be talking and sharing what it is to have a relationship with God, helping them take steps of faith toward that relationship. And, and it's a huge and, God's gospel never stops with a simple formula for getting people into heaven. It never stops there. Jesus says as much in Mark chapter one of the Bible as he calls his very first disciples. He says, guys, look, I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. And you know, because you're fishermen, that when you hook a fish, it has dramatic consequences for that fish. Life for that fish cannot ever be the same. It cannot go on in the same that it was before. He says, this work that you do for me is like fishing. And you're going to bring my transformative power, power that brings about judgment and death to the old, judgment and death to the injustice, to the oppression, to the poverty. You're actually going to be about undoing that stuff, rolling it back, preparing the way for my kingdom. And at the same time, you're going to be about invoking a brand new creation right here and right now. 
the first disciples and the now disciples, we are agents who bring God's compelling message and actually sets the hook of God's gospel, which changes lives beyond all recognition. And sometimes that has to do with the saving of souls, and sometimes that has to do with rolling back oppression and injustice, setting the world right. Jesus knew full well what his gospel was all about. It was his gospel, was it not? His gospel tells us the whole story. It doesn't leave anything unanswered. It tells us why we fight with each other. It tells us why we war against each other. It tells us why there's pain and why there's suffering. The gospel even tells us why there's death. And the gospel that Jesus Christ invites all of us to the ministry of reveals the very heart of God himself for humanity, reveals the depths of his love, the depths of his acceptance, the depths of his vision for every person on planet earth. The gospel that Jesus Christ invites us to participate in with him gives hope, real hope, in the face of injustice. Not just talk about, kind of hope like we should someday do something about that but hope that actually delivers hope from injustice hope from hunger hope from poverty hope that comes through our very tangible action of making those things right not just sitting in a room and thinking about all those poor people somebody should do something about that but actually does something toward making it right. The gospel that Jesus invites all of us to participate in gives hope for recovery, hope for transformation from every vice, from every societal ill. It advocates for community. It advocates for acceptance and fairness and forgiveness and for love of people regardless of their past mistakes, regardless of their sexual orientation, Regardless of their political persuasion, the gospel that Jesus Christ invites us to participate in explains where meaning comes from and how we can live an integrated experience in light of God's love, in light of his redemption for all of creation. Jesus knew, see, that his gospel, the gospel that he was inviting us to participate in, is the hope of the world. It's the hope of the world. And it's the hope of the world for people who are trying to sort out the eternity issue and what happens at the end of this life. And it's also the hope of the world for those who are engaged in sex trafficking and child slavery and unjust trade practices around the globe because the gospel of Jesus Christ, the full, real deal gospel of Jesus Christ sets like a fish hook in the soul of human beings so that transformation is all there is. And for us, right here and right now, you go, so what do I do with all of that? Some days, the gospel that Jesus invites us to participate in with him, this fishing for people, that'll have us sitting across a coffee shop table from a friend, pressing in, asking questions. What do you do with the person of God? What do you do with Jesus Christ? Who is he to you? What does it mean for you to have a relationship with God 
Fishing for people will have us in that place some days. While other days, this fishing for people deal, it might just look something like Walt. Walt, of all people, in the film Grand Torino, who stepped in between a neighbor and an oppressor, all for the sake of bringing justice, all for the sake of setting a wrong right, rolling back oppression, and bringing God's kingdom. The point is, it's not either or, not even close. Fishing for people is this both and kind of experience, moment by moment, day by day. Why don't you take your stuff and set it aside, and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and Go to prayer, if you would, and tell God what you're thinking about. Have at that. Could I ask you to stay in a posture of prayer for the next moments, please? I want to talk to Christ followers first. Could I just ask you, where and with whom is Jesus challenging you toward this fishing for people deal? Maybe there's someone very specific in your world who you need to sit down with and have a conversation around what it means to have a relationship with God. Or maybe you've got that really well dialed in. You got the saving of souls thing. You, you got that punched out. But for you, you need to tip over to the other side of the scales. Is there some injustice that you need to be about setting right? Is there some oppression that you could be a part of rolling back and putting a stop to? And there's micro stuff, yeah, stuff in your own home, in your own life, in your own neighborhood. And then there's also macro stuff out there, way bigger than just one of us. We all have a part to play. Would you just listen into the Lord, not just in this time, but will you give him an ear for the rest of your life about this stuff? That the gospel of Jesus Christ that you are about is the actual gospel of Jesus Christ, not just about saving souls, but also about making this world a whole lot less hostile by relieving oppression, putting an end to suffering, being a part of rolling back poverty, hunger, bringing clean water to people who don't have it. And then maybe there's those of you who are here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. Why not make this your day? Why not make this your day? What's keeping you from experiencing Jesus' gospel right here, right now, today? Because the truth is, Jesus loves you and Jesus has been pursuing you for your whole life. And your ability to experience the gospel of Jesus Christ starts with you stepping into a relationship with him. 
You can do that right now, right where you're sitting. You can do it by praying a prayer with me, a prayer that goes something like this. God, I know beyond the shadow of any doubt how much you love me. And I thank you so much for sending your son to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know I've blown it. I know I've sinned. And I know that you are perfect and you are holy. And that my sin has caused a chasm between us. But God, I believe that because of your love, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross to take the penalty of my sin off of me and put it onto him. I thank you so much for that gift. And I ask you to, by Jesus' death, forgive me, please, and send Jesus to live inside of me. God, I want you to be my friend. I need you to change me. I need you to clean my life up, please, God. And then would you please be about making me a fisher of people, please, God. And that settling of your eternal destiny is the biggest choice of your whole life. Nothing matters more. And it's such a big deal that around here we ask people to tell us when they make that decision, and I'm going to ask you to do that with me. Nobody's going to embarrass you. Nobody's looking around this room but me. If you prayed with me just then, would you be so bold as to slip your hand up, make eye contact with me, and just say, yes, I stepped across the line of faith today. You just do that now. Just lift your hand up and make sure I catch your eye if you would, please. And you right there. God's changing you right now. Way to go. Will there be any others? I want to miss you. It's a weighty deal. God, thanks so much for your truth and your hope and your life that causes us to get the big picture. And Lord, we know that we fall short and we know that we miss it more often than we get it. And that's why we cling so tightly to you. That's why we hold on. That's why we trust you and follow you and pursue you, God. We don't have it figured out. And we need your illumination to show the way. And God, I pray for us as a community that the gospel would be a balanced affair, that it would be as much about saving souls as it is about rolling back injustice and bringing your hope and your justice. That we would be about doing both because it's what you're about. It's what you invite and task us to be about, Father. And we're your children. And so we're just going to do what you ask us to do because we love you and because we want to please you. Go with us, please. Go with us, please. We pray all of this in Jesus' holy, precious name. And the church said,